Amen. You may be seated. If you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people, to open your Word, to to seek you in it this morning. We pray uh, that as we do so, that you would meet us in this time, that you would lead and guide our time. Uh, We confess as we open your Word each week that we cannot do this on our own, uh, that we need you to be teaching and guiding and leading us in all things. And so we just confess that this morning. We pray that the Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would move freely in this place, uh, taking the truths of your words and applying them to our hearts and our minds, and that we would leave here having seen you more fully, more clearly, that you would light a passion anew for your glory and for your name and for your face. Uh, We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, some of you know, I mentioned this from time to time. I used to coach basketball. Uh, I grew up playing basketball my whole life. That was kind of just my sport. I loved playing, and uh, I got the opportunity to coach for several years. And uh, there was something that I implemented on the teams when I would coach. Uh, one of the things that I would do regularly is uh, when we were practicing, whether we were uh, scrimmaging, going over plays, doing different things, if I blew the whistle, kind of actively going over plays, those type of things as we were playing, if I blew the whistle, I would ask all the guys just to stop right where they were. And, and the reason was it was a teaching moment. Oftentimes as we were going over plays, I'd blow the whistle. I'd want them to stop right where they were so I could kind of point out to maybe where somebody was out of position or, or, or weren't they weren't doing quite right. Or, or I like to blow the whistle as we were on defense and we were scrimmaging and they didn't box out. And, and we'd have to run for that or different things like that. And so they just knew if I blew the whistle in those environments, they were supposed to stop. But one of the things that would happen frequently as I did that, probably uh, at the beginning of the season as we were learning plays every week, hopefully it got less as the season went on, but I would blow the whistle and a guy would have the ball and and I would just ask a question, okay, what are you thinking, what are you doing right now? So we'd be running a play and a guy would have the ball and he'd say something like, okay, coach, we're running this play, I'm looking for Joe who's about to come around, I'm going to pass it to him. I'd say, okay, that's great, now look at where you are on the court. And he'd be wide open under the basket with a layup right in front of him. But he would be looking at, I'm going to pass it to this guy who's coming around so we can run this play to score a basket. And I would just ask the question, what's the goal of running the plays? What are we trying to do? And they'd all go, well, we're trying to score a basket. i go, great, so shoot it. If you're wide open and there's no one around you, then shoot the ball. Don't worry about running the play. The goal is to get a basket. And if you're open, shoot it. And so what I would refer to that is, and the reason I would say it is because my coach used to say it to us when I was playing basketball, is that we had gotten tunnel vision, that you're so intent on I've got to run this play and I have to do it this way that I've forgotten the big idea of what we're actually trying to accomplish. And so I would say, I don't want you to get tunnel vision. We want to score a basket and it's okay for you to shoot it. If you can make that shot and you're open, shoot it. I think the same is true in our faith sometimes, that we get into this uh, reading our Bible Uh, coming to worship, getting together with different things, and we get tunnel vision. And these things begin to take on and be something that they weren't supposed to or weren't ever designed to be. We get kind of caught in seeing it one way when that's not the way God intended it. And so uh, sometimes we need uh, reminders to help break us out of that, uh, ways to help us see it more clearly. Uh, I was thinking back on different things that have been instrumental in my life 
uh, in my faith and the way I've grown in it. There's just two classes that just really stick out to me at different times. One was when I was in seminary. I had to take a class called Bible for Teachers. And what it was is it was teaching you how to teach the overview of the Bible. And uh, I remember taking this class in an intensive two weeks. So you went to class all day, every day for two weeks. And in one class, in one day over about seven or eight hours, my professor, Dr. Cooper, taught us the overview of the entire Bible. Had great big whiteboards, drew this whole thing out. We sat in there all day and went through it. And I still remember vividly walking out of the class that day and just going, wow. I had never seen the Bible like that before. There were connections made and things explained and questions that I had that I had never seen before. And all of a sudden, they were all becoming clear. And it was so exciting. I remember walking out. I remember telling all my friends in seminary, you have to take this class. Just for this one day, if for nothing else, you've got to take this class. Because it made so clear the overview, the big story of what God was doing from Genesis to Revelation. All one storyline so clearly. And that was so instrumental, that class. But then there was another class that I took a couple years after I graduated. I took it correspondence because I wanted to. I had just started to preach some at the time. And it was called Christ-Centered Preaching in a Postmodern Context. Uh, Dr. Timothy Keller and Edmund Clowney teach this class. And what they do in that class is they spend a lot of time in helping you to see Jesus in all the Bible. And they take you through how everything hinges on the work of Christ. How all the Old Testament is pointing ahead to Jesus and how all of the New Testament is now explaining and showing that. And it was profound. It changed the way I look. And those two classes together greatly Help pull me kind of out of a, a tunnel vision to see the big story of what God was doing. And I mention that because the text that Luke just read to us this morning, where we are in Acts, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. We're now in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out. We looked at this last week from the church at Antioch, and they're going on these missionary journeys, and they're going into different towns. And what we see is Paul's uh, kind of his... Uh, plan for evangelism, for spreading the gospel, is he goes into these towns and he shares the gospel in the synagogue. And he goes in and he teaches and he tells and then he, 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 they hear and then they stay in the town for a time and they begin to establish churches. And that's what they're going to do over and over again. But as we see Paul going into the synagogue, he's going to meet these guys that know the Old Testament, really know the Old Testament. And what we're going to see him do is he goes in and he begins to do this. He's going to meet these guys that have gotten tunnel vision. That they are so set on this is the Old Testament. This is what it teaches. This is what it means. And this is what we're looking for. And he's going to come in and he's going to teach the whole Bible to them. And he's going to start to show them that they're missing part of what's going on. It's kind of like Paul's coming in and he's showing them the big picture. Um, Like if you've ever done a puzzle before. Have you ever done a puzzle with your kids or, or maybe you do the really elaborate ones you like to do those? If you've ever done a puzzle before, you need the box top to see what this, the picture looks like, right? If you don't, you just got like a thousand pieces of all little different colors and it's so hard to make sense of it. And, and so in a sense, what Paul's going to do is he's going to come in and he's going to show him the box top. He's going to go, you've gotten tunnel vision and you've messed, you've missed what God's doing. And I want you to see the big picture of what he's doing. And I'm going to show you this by walking you through the Bible and how it comes to fruition in Jesus. And that's exactly what he's going to do. And it took me back to those two classes that were just so uh, fundamentally instrumental in my life. Because that's exactly what both of them did. 
Here is the story of what God's doing and how all of it comes to find its ends in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning of how Paul and Barnabas go in and they begin to do this. And as we do, just let me remind you that this is not their idea. This is actually the way Jesus discipled the first disciples to do this. Right? Luke 24 Right after the resurrection, Jesus comes and he meets with the disciples and he says this in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance. For the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Do you hear what Jesus says? I'm going to teach you how to read the Bible. And the way that you read the Bible and the way that you see the story is that all finds its fulfillment in me and how you can now have the uh, forgiveness of sins. And I want you to tell everybody that. And so what we see Paul doing is not some strategy that he came up with. That he thought, oh, this will be really great. It's exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do. It's exactly how he taught them to read the Bible. And so we're going to look at this as he goes into these places and begins to do this. And he's going to do what, what Luke just read to us. Is that Paul literally walks them straight through the overview of the Bible. And he's going to show them where they were missing it and, and how it pertains to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the overview of the Bible. So... Not to freak you out, I've gotten okay at doing this in a short amount of time, but we're going to go through the whole Bible. Right? So it's not going to be like four hours of, you know, but, but we're just going to briefly go through a big picture of the Bible and how it finds its ends in Jesus, because that's what Paul's doing in this text. That's exactly what he's taking them through here. And so here's what I want you to consider as we do. Why does Paul tell the story this way, and why does he highlight the things that he does? It's very deliberate in what he's doing and the way he's showing them. And so I want you to think about that as we walk our way straight through that. And so there's a key here to what he's doing. And I think it's exactly what Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 24. He shows them how it all works, how it lays out, how it pertains to him so that you can see that there's forgiveness for sins. That this is what Jesus has come to do. And we need to keep that key in front of us. Because oftentimes we can kind of get this tunnel vision when it comes to the Bible. The Bible becomes a lot of rules or a lot of regulations or ethical teachings or things that we can do or things that we can take up and all these ways that we can look at it. But if we miss what Jesus is doing at the very center, we miss all of it. And so we're going to look at what he unfolds here as we do. And so what Paul does Starting in verse 17, if you want to look there, he comes into the synagogue, he's talking, and then they ask him in verse 15, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he begins to unfold. He says there in verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out. And so I'm going to stop right there for just a second. What Paul does is he begins in Exodus. And just a side note here, when he comes into these synagogues, he's coming into a place, it's a regular place of worship, 
where they hear the scriptures read, where they talk about these things. It's kind of a cultural center of the city. They come there. That's where they get educated in the Old Testament. And so he has an audience that knows the Bible really well, that knows the Old Testament really well. It's very devout Jews and God fears those that are interested in the things of God, maybe not ethnically Jewish, but they want to come there to hear about God. And so he goes there first where they have this understanding. I think that's why he talks the way he does. That's why he jumps right in and he, he kind of does these summaries and he hits on these things from the Old Testament. Now, some scholars will believe, and there's some evidence for this, that each one of these, these verses is just kind of the outline. So the big idea of everything that he's going to say, that he actually said a lot more than that, but the way it's recorded for us is just giving you kind of the, the outline, the high points. And that makes some sense that he spoke longer than just a couple minutes here. But he's unfolding what the Scripture says. And so he starts in Exodus. But before we jump in, I want us to go back for just a second. If you know the Bible, you know Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis being the first. So Genesis, Exodus. And I want us just to think about big idea of the Scripture before we jump into what Paul says here in Exodus. And so in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God creates all things. He speaks all things into creation by the word of his power. In the beginning, God said, and he makes all things. And we get down to the end of chapter one and he creates man in his image after his likeness to be in relationship with him. So what God tells us holds together as who we are as people made in his image to have a relationship with him. And then chapter two, he makes Male and female, he shows us kind of how they go together. Chapter 3, or at the end of chapter 2, he gives them this warning. He says, you are made to center around me, to trust me. That's really what he says. You can eat of any tree except for this one. I just want you to trust me on this. And so he gives them this parameter. And then we get to chapter 3, and what does man and the first woman do? They decide that they can get their identity from their self rather than God. We can make ourselves be like God by not listening to him and just making our own decisions. That is what sin is. God created us to center on him because he is the center of all things. Creator, redeemer, sustainer of all. He exists and we exist for him in that way. But they decide that they can do it without him. And so they eat from the tree and sin enters. And with it as they do... Their real choices come real consequences. Instead of keeping God at the center the way they were made to live close in a complete relationship with him, they choose to ignore him and evil and struggle and frustration and heartache and insecurity all come flooding in. And it ultimately ends in death. God says the wages of sin is death. If you choose to ignore me in this way, this disintegration comes. And so they do. But God, being full of grace and mercy, immediately looks at them and he says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send one through your seed, Eve, that is going to bring the restoration of all things. God makes that promise in Genesis 3. And he tells them there are consequences and this is going to be hard now and there's going to be a struggle, but I'm going to fix it. And the Bible begins to unfold that story all the way through. We flip over to Genesis 12 and God chooses one man named Abraham. And he says, I'm going to, uh, through your seed, continue the promise that I had given to Eve. And so he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. I'm going to give you, make you into a great nation. But ultimately, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And so he begins to do that. And what we see in the rest of Genesis is the unfolding of this promise. When we get to Exodus right here where Paul picks up, he even picks up on this. He says, God, uh, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. If you know your Bible, 70 of Abraham's family go down to Egypt at the end of Genesis. At the beginning of Exodus, they have grown to be two to three million people from this one man, Abraham, and his barren wife. Right? There's some details in there that we didn't even talk about, but that's what God is doing, and he's bringing them this. And so that's what Paul's hitting on here. They would have known that, and that's what he's talking about. And so verse 17 is about Exodus and how God begins to grow them into a nation. Again, if you know your Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, God changes his name to Israel where we get the nation. And this is the beginning of it in Exodus. But then if you read verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And so what Paul's just done in verses 17 and 18 is covered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's showing you this is what God's doing and how he's bringing them. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as an inheritance, right? So people and land, first two promises he gives to Abraham. By the way, verse 19 is the book of Joshua. He's got these summaries down, right? Like five, six words. That's what happens in Joshua. He gives them the land of Canaan and the promised land that he gave them. And so they go in and they take the land. Verse 20, and all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Can you guess what book he discovered in verse 20? Right? Judges. Joshua, Judges. Judges is a cycle of 350 years. As the nation rises and falls as they ignore God and he calls them back. He raises up military leaders to save them and he does it over and over again. And they keep turning their back and he keeps being faithful and he keeps pursuing them. And you get through and then Samuel stops that cycle and Samuel helps them to become a kingdom or or, or a nation. And so look at what it says happened. Then they asked for a king, verse 21, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. And so I wanted to stop there for just a second. I think there's a dangerous shift that happens when we read through the Old Testament right around that time. They've been struggling along. They, they, they turn their backs on God. We see the faithfulness of God pursuing his people. But right around this time, as Samuel is raised up, the people say to Samuel, we want a king to be like the other nations. That's what they say. We want to be like everybody else, so would you give us a king? But the problem is God had called these people to himself to be a light to show what he is like. He called them to be a holy nation, which means set apart, not like everyone else. They rejected that and decided we want to be just like everybody else. We want a king. And so God gives them Saul, and then he gives them David, and then Solomon after And what happens is they grow into the greatest nation on the face of the earth. 
And I think they like it. I think they get comfortable and going, yeah, look at who we are now. We're the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Because right after this time, right after Solomon, they totally turn their back on God. And it causes all kinds of issues and all sorts of problems. And Paul doesn't even go into that here. Kind of leaves that aside. But he brings you back. I think he's showing you where they went off the rails. They wanted a king to be just like all the other nations. But look at how Paul brings it back in the way he tells the story. Verse 23, talking about David. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. This dangerous shift happens where they want to look like the rest of the world. But Paul goes, no, no, no. God was doing this work. And he was never promising a king in the way that you thought he was promising a king. When he promised a descendant of David who would be on the throne forever, Paul says he was talking about Jesus. He says, when John the Baptist came, he told you this. Right? He, he begins to highlight John the Baptist. If you know your Bible, John the Baptist's ministry was this. He came to Israel and he said, repent. You're not saved by being ethnic Jews. You're saved by faith and you need to repent. You think you're saved by being this group of people, but you are saved by putting your faith in the promises of what God would do. And that's what Paul or that's what John the Baptist came and proclaimed. And so Paul is bringing them back to that and he's showing them this dangerous shift in their thinking, this subtle shift. See, what happened is Israel began to think as they heard the promises of God. They saw the heights that they they got to under David and Solomon and a kingdom like all the other kingdoms. And then God makes this promise. I'm going to bring a king in the line of David. And they thought, oh, yeah, it's going to come back to this. It's going to be like this again one day. We're going to get to be a king. And so they started to wait for their king to come that they could kind of shoehorn their tunnel vision of the way they thought it should be. We're going to be a great kingdom. We're going to take over the world. We're going to overthrow Rome. All these great things are going to happen. And then Jesus shows up and they don't recognize him because they have this tunnel vision of what he was supposed to be like. And he didn't look like what they thought. And the problem is, and this is what Paul, I believe, is highlighting here, is they forgot the problem. When we go back to Genesis 3... The problem is our relationship with God has been cut off because of our rebellion and our sin. And we desperately need a savior to come deal with the great chasm that now exists. We don't just need an earthly king. We need a savior. And they wanted an earthly king. And Paul goes, no, 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 you missed it. And he comes and he begins to show him and he said, I want you to see where you went off and where you missed what was happening here. And so Paul's highlighting that and he's starting to bring them back. They had decided to let their conception of a nation, of an earthly kingdom, define what the Messiah would look like. And what Paul's pointing them to is, do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham? He said, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you lots of descendants and I'm going to make you into a great nation so that you can bless 
the world through your seed. God's coming for the redemption of all things, of all people, of all nations, of all tribes, of all tongues, of his entire creation, not just one little part. And they'd missed it. And so Paul continues to show them and he continues to tell them, look at verse uh, 22 and following. And when they had removed him, he raised up David. Actually, skip down. Verse 24. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, the one who's coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. And he highlights that ministry of John. He says he's pointing to the one. He was telling you. He was trying to show you where you'd gotten off, but they missed it. But then he says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize nor did they understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath and by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the goodness that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written, and then he goes and he puts to all these Old Testament passages. But here's what I want you to see, this incredible thing that he says here. He says, you missed it. You didn't understand what the Messiah would look like, and you missed it. And not only did you miss it, in your ignorance, you put him to death. You had him crucified because he didn't fit your mold. But then he says, yet God raised them for the dead. And now I'm here to tell you that you can be saved. You see how incredible it is to what he says to them. You totally missed it and you killed them. But yet I'm here to tell you there's still hope for you. The ones that put the Savior to death, you can be saved. And he begins to point them to Jesus and the fulfillment of his work and all that he's done. And he begins to show them how it all hinges and holds together on himself. Look at what he says in verse 36. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you hear what he's saying? You missed it. But what Jesus has come to do is he's come to free you and to meet your deepest need. Read that verse again. I read this all week and then I read it this morning and I was overwhelmed by what Paul says here. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who is belie- who believes is freed from everything. You hear what he's saying? 
He didn't come to be a king who's just over a little part of the earth and overthrow governments. He has come to free you from everything. Your sin and the results of it. Your insecurity and your pain and your struggles and your hardships and disease and death. All of it. He says you wanted to make him this little thing. And he's so much bigger than that. He is the God of the Bible who pursues us. He's not just an earthly king. He has come to free you from all that you could never do for yourself. You could never ever do enough to restore your relationship with God, so Jesus came to do it for you. And here's the problem. So often in our tunnel vision, we want to make what Jesus said some rules we follow. We want to make the Bible this burden that I have to get up and I've got to read my Bible today. We make coming to this place as, oh, I better go to worship. We, be, we get tunnel vision of making it things that it was never meant to be. And what Paul's telling you is that all of human history, all of it, Everything about this creation and this world and time and space finds its end in Jesus. That's the point of all of it. He didn't come to give you something else. He came to give you himself. He came to say you can have a relationship with the living God of the universe. And in him, he meets all your needs. It's not that we take Jesus And we add him into our life and we add his teachings to us. And then maybe I can live a little better. Or if I take the principles of Jesus leadership, I can be a more successful businessman. No, he says, I came to give you myself. He came to defeat sin and death itself. And he says this, that he's freed you from everything. And then he says in verse verse 41, as as he quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. You hear what he's saying? Whatever the conception you had of the Messiah, it's not even close. It is so much bigger and so much more astounding than anything you could ever imagine. And so Jesus comes to deal with what separates us from us. And so if we miss the big story and how Jesus is at the center, we miss it all. So when we gather together, we're always going to land on the gospel. That you have been separated from the one that completes you. The one that meets all your needs that answers all your insecurities, that deals with all your fears. And now Jesus has come and he's given you a way to be restored to that, that you can be made whole. And if I tell you anything less than that, if we say, here's some principles that you can apply to your life and it'll make you feel a little better this week, but we don't get to the need that we have of Jesus, we've missed it. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. You missed it. But the good news is he turns to them and he says, you put him to death and you missed it and you delivered him over to be crucified. But now I come to tell you that salvation is here. Repent and believe. 
today is the day. No matter how many times we misapply and we seek to use Jesus, we seek to use him as our uh, co-pilot. If you got that bumper sticker, I don't mean to offend you, but I hate that bumper sticker. Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's not your guru. He's not your best buddy. He is your Savior that gives you everything you ever wanted and you ever needed. So when you look at this picture of the way he lays it out, and he proclaims it, and it says that some came to him after, and they were excited... Meeting in the synagogue, verse 43, as it broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And they spoke with him and they urged them to continue in the grace of God. They're like, this is something. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Why? A tunnel vision. It's not what it looks like. They would have to humble themselves and see that the gospel is for all people. And like that. And so they started to revile. And so Paul hears that and he sees what they're doing and they spoke out boldly. It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, We are turning to the Gentiles. As a Gentile, that's so wonderful news. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see what he's saying? That was always the plan. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. It's going to go to all people. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. This incredible thing happens as Paul's bringing it back to the, the biblical center of the whole story. And people start coming to faith and they're rejoicing. It's all Jesus. And that means it's the gospel is for all people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we're all saved the same way. And we all desperately need Jesus the same way. And so as we think about what he preaches there and how it applies to us, I just want to challenge you with a couple of things. And the first thing I would say to you is if all history is about Jesus, what God is doing to bring redemption to his creation in Christ, he is the central thing in all of history. Does it make any sense that he is not Lord of your life? make any sense at all that he's your co-pilot or he's your guru or he's your buddy or he's the one that maybe I might apply some of the things he said to my life some of the time. Doesn't make any sense. He is everything you ever wanted and you ever need. He didn't come to be a means to an end. He came to be the ends. He came to meet all your needs. And so what is the proper response when we see that? 
to put our faith and trust and hope and our life in Him. But also I want to say to you, the good news of what Paul preaches to them, I want to be the good news that you hear today. In a lot of ways, we're just like the people he's preaching to. Daily, we get tunnel vision and we decide to apply it in different ways and ignore the truth of the gospel and we need to hear it afresh. You are saved not by your works, but what Christ has done for you. You have been freed from all things from which you could not be freed from doing the works of the law. Jesus has freed you. Your part is to trust in him. To throw yourself at the mercy of the one who gives you mercy. That he meets you in the middle of that and day by day we're being renewed. But we see him as the center, not other things. And so we need to hear the big story. Try to do that from time to time. There's the big picture. It's all about Jesus. Because we miss that. We need to keep the box top in front of us, seeing the big picture of what God has done in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you love us, that you pursue us, that you continue to show us. I thank you for the glorious story that you are unfolding in front of us. That in our sin, you immediately were pursuing us, bringing salvation to all people from all nations and all tongues and all tribes. And it's all that we're all saved the same way. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you loved us so much that you came and you you called us to yourself and you continue to call people to yourself. I pray that we would see afresh today how you meet all of our needs. That when we struggle and when we mess up and we do dumb things, when we fall into patterns of sin, that you stand there welcoming us, that we can be saved by what you have done, not what we do. That we can rest in your righteousness, not our own. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Will you guys stand with me?